Who the bloody hell's that? Morning, Ange. Oh, Anthony. How are we? I'm really well. How are you? <laughs> Come on in. I will do. Thank you. Did that sound staged? Just a little. No, it's fine. fine. Yeah. I'm going to embrace the whole lounge pant thing next time. I'm going to put my University of New Hampshire lounge pants on. You should indeed. You're listening to the Corona Diaries, a sometimes random and often irreverent attempt to understand the psyche of singer Steve Hogarth. I'm also in record on Zoom. Are you alright, H? I'm recording. Alright, okay. Hello and welcome to chapter 183 of the Corona Diaries. And we haven't done this for a while, but we're recording back to back... Um, because Tim's with us. Tim's still with us. Hello, Tim. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you. Well, as well as still you were 30 seconds ago, the last time we spoke to you. <laughs> what even are you though a week about? has passed. <laughs> even though a week has passed. Um, and the reason for, for, for this is, and, and I'll make an apology from the beginning, because 183 might not be as long as some of the other episodes, but I, I had a thought that I'd be really quite nice to talk about um, the Albert Hall gig and recording while you were here. Uh, and it warrants a bit of time to breathe on its own because I think it's such a spectacular achievement. Um, but we're all a little bit pressed for time this morning, so we'll record as much as we can before commitments drag us drag us off. Um, but we'll get we'll get right into it. Um, H, you you really pushed for the Albert Hall. You've been pushing the Albert Hall for for quite a while. When did it start to become something that was going to be a thing? Well, maybe I just ground them down. I've been banging on about it since season's end, um, saying, why don't we do the Albert Hall? Why do we want to do that? So what? What? Um, so it's the Albert Hall, you kind of, if, you, if you're not a proper musician, which let's face it, none of us are. Uh, we weren't, we didn't go to college and learn dots and lines and become virtuosos on, on our instruments we we you know we know what we're doing um we have a different set of skills and they they were learned in in grubbier places and honed gradually um you know in a maybe in a cloud of alcohol or or, or drugs or whatever but you, you you make that journey from knowing nothing to to being quite good at something um, but the the whole time you're on that journey, you you kind of back of your mind. You think, well, you know, we're not proper musicians, are we? You know, and and the so when you first come across the opportunity to work with, uh, in inverted commas, classical players, uh, whether they're string players or brass or or woodwind or whatever they are, um, there is always a sense of Oh, you know, this is the real deal now. I must have arrived if these people are... I mean, I know I'm paying them, but it, but if they're working with me, I, I must have arrived on some level. Um, and so maybe I'm, part of it is probably that I was looking for some kind of uh, affirmation um, as a musician or... Um, in in getting into that world, but the, but the 
the the ultimate example of that world is is to play the Albert Hall, you know, to be in their backyard, uh, and instead of some dirty theatre, which let's face it, even even Hammersmith Odeon and um, Wembley Arena are pretty dirty once you get backstage. Um, the Palladium's all right, by the way, um, but. The thought of playing the Albert Hall was sort of in for me was synonymous with having arrived and being proper and i've I've always pined for that kind of affirmation, and that's why I've always been banging on about doing the Albert Hall. I joined this I joined this band that was you know a big band. Um, and I was quite surprised to find that the perspectives of the of the members of that big band was that their idea of arriving is playing Wembley Stadium or something. Um, I don't give a monkey's about that personally. Um, I think stadiums are for football and athletics. I don't know what bands are doing in them, to be honest. Um. But the Albert Hall is proper, and that's that. I mean, there's so much bound up in the Albert Hall in in my mind. It's redolent of so many things. It's it's redolent of the Nutcracker at Christmas. It's redolent of the Royal Ballet. It's redolent of the London Symphony Orchestra. It's even these days redolent of. Um, Cirque Soleil, you know. I mean, proper shit goes on at the Albert Hall, um, and so I, I've always wanted to play. It's also redolent of Empire, and the establishment and Queen Victoria, of course. Um, so, to put rock and roll in the Albert Hall is 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 also. You know, and I know it's been going on for years, and the Stones have done it, and Clapton's done it, and it's been it's been a that's been counterculture kicking back at the establishment. You know, the very fact that they got anywhere near that stage was a little bit of a um, you know of a, of a kicking back at the old order. Um, and I did have a moment on stage at the Albert Hall when I was um, singing that end section of the New Kings, you know, remember a time when you thought that you might have believed in the school song, Die for Your Country. And I, I suddenly thought, my God, I can't believe I'm singing these words in this place because this is it. This is everything I'm trying to tear down with this song. And I'm... I'm sitting in the mosque of the establishment, um, screaming this back, and I I thought I might catch fire or be struck by lightning at any point, um, you know, by the, by the lightning of the empire. So that was an amazing moment. It never occurred to me till I was actually there doing it. Um, I had a little bit of a goosebumps from head to foot as I realised what was going on um, so what was the question I, I, I actually can't remember myself now <laughs> I basically was asking when did it when did it be, start to become real but ah, you, yes. you, what is it right so a 
I think we've said this before, it's perfect that it would be that album in that venue for exactly what you've just said. It was almost worth the wait. Well, it was worth the wait. Absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt. I don't think there's anything that, that, any source material that would have been better than the source material, essentially, you know, because obviously you played the entire album. Um, but and I think we he... had the sex debt with us, you know, yeah. and if we'd have gone and done the Albert Hall for the first time on the holidays in Eden, we'd have just been a band playing an album in a posh hall. But as it was, this this... The 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 RAH show represented a kind of a, a closing of a a circle and a coming to coming mm. together of a lot of disparate things that were never planned but just happened to fall together um, at that at that moment and you know an album that was about to some degree um, this illusion of Englishness and. Um, and um and to have arrived at a point where where we we'd worked together with these six fantastic classical musicians and ha- and had them on board and so suddenly the whole thing made perfect sense it was like we'd planned it planned it to the nth degree and we hadn't it had just fallen together if anyone had had the vision it might have been lucy who'd who'd kind of maybe seen that coming and 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 thought you know what this needs to happen in the royal albert mm-hmm. hall but we we found it very difficult to persuade the royal albert hall to have us um because we're kind of music business renegades um they won't deal with you they'll on, they'll only deal with established promoters and agents as well the RAH so the only way we could get in there was by you know doing a deal with the devil and um, getting back into the established music business and using a a proper big time concert promoter which was everything we tried to escape from uh, years earlier and even that fell together um mark kelly i think he was on the board of ppl or something um doing grown-up things sitting around tables and having meetings um which um is probably a kind of affirmation that mark yearns for and just as i yearn for a different kind of affirmation i think mark yearns for He's never had a proper job, so I think he yearns to have meetings and do you know do proper things, um, which is fair enough. He's probably by now realised how fucking boring that is, and not something to aspire to. But um, <laughs> so he's dropped out of PPL now. He's got back into being a musician. <laughs> um, I, I digress, but. Um, it was Mark because of because of his uh, little spell of being proper and sitting around tables and having meetings with business types. He ended up having I don't know a lunch or something with Stuart Galbraith. Now Stuart Galbraith had been our agent years and years and years ago, and I remember offending him. And telling him to fuck off out of our dressing room once at the um, corn exchange <laughs> in Cambridge. <laughs> um, 
he, I think he got a cold or something. He was just sitting around being miserable. And I said, if you're going to sit here being miserable, why don't you just fuck off? Um, and that was the last time I'd spoken to Stuart, which was a bit harsh. But, you know, you've got to get a vibe going on a show. You don't want somebody sitting around being miserable. That's what the band's for. Um, so uh, I threw him out. And then I don't think I'd seen him much since then, although I did quite like him. And um, anyway, Mark said, oh, I guess who I had dinner with you today? I said, who is that? Stuart Galbraith. I went, oh, that one I threw out. He said, yeah, that's him. Um, and he said, oh, he's now running a big a big uh, agency called, um, what are they called? Kilimanjaro. Um, and they're, they've got the kind of clout that could get us the Albert Hall. And I think Stuart was sort of trying to soften Mark up for yet for a Marillion reunion with Fish. You know, I think he was trying to see if that was on the cards, you know, ka-ching. Uh, and Mark at the same time was thinking, oh, if this bugger can get us the Albert Hall, I'll chat him up a bit. So there was a bit of mutual chatting up going on. Um, and um, Mark came to us and said he... he he thought that perhaps Stuart Galbraith could get us a date at RAH. Um, so we we became, I mean, we never signed anything, but we, we began a relationship then with Kilimanjaro, which has actually worked out really well, and they're, they're a good bunch of people, and, and I've really enjoyed working with them. Um, so because of that, it the thing pulled together and 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 the Royal Albert Hall offered us a date and that wouldn't have happened if that hadn't happened so all of these things fell together to to make it come to be right there's loads there and I'm going to come to Tim in a second but a couple of things while we're on we're on some of those things one interesting because you talked about some of the acts who were. Who were play? They play the Albert Hall in a kind of a pushback. But in reality, by the time people like Clapton played the Albert Hall, they were so establishment themselves anyway. They didn't. Yeah. They didn't play the Albert Hall when he was in Cream or what have you. He played the Albert Hall when he was absolutely, you know, establishment. A lot of the other ones did. Which I don't think you might have had to take an establishment route to get the venue. But I don't think at any point you were were your establishment. So I think that's quite an interesting thing. I think it's interesting that the music, in terms of things like. Um, you know the the musicians you were using, and that the way all that came together um, in that venue. That's a venue that yes, we think about in terms of proper musicians, proper you know, sort of classical or whatever it might be. But the bit you were pushing back on is what the building represents in 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 terms of the establishment, rather than necessarily the creativity that goes on with it. And I think it's important you divorce those two things. So I think that bit's really quite fascinating as well. And I think the final thing when you think about an hour before it's dark, you've got that anti-establishment and that pushback in that message but you've also got songs like Believers and and that venue which brings everybody in the Marillion family together that song also needed to be in that venue you mean fear you mean fear not an hour before it starts uh, yes yeah, sorry I mean fear yeah. yeah but I mean the content yeah. of that album just just absolutely had to be the one yeah yeah it was amazing and even the way the the classical players came to work with us it, it I'd kind of fallen into that as well by bumping into Nicole Miller in uh, in Sweden, 
when I was working with this elder spine, if I'd never done that, I never would have met her. And she never would have said, oh, I've got this quartet and we'd really like to work. We'd like to do some rock and roll. And, uh, I don't know. We'd have never met um, the Follies. And the Follies weren't just the quartet. They'd got a vibe going. But, you know, they'd got a vibe that was way beyond classical music. They'd kind of got a, a mischievous rock and roll vibe about them themselves, even though they're all proper players. Um and they had this, well, they have this youthful exuberance, which brought something to us as well. It was a joy. It was a joy working with them, and and um, and of course Sam, um, he's a sort of rock and roller who plays the French horn. Um, Emma's now out on tour with the Who, uh, you know, so she's a classical flautist. That uh, I don't know. Don't know if she's trashing her flute every night better not that that would get expensive um but we'd got quite a little rock and roll ensemble but at the same time they were all very serious players and that was their you know emma would be running off to do glindborn the following day and that kind of thing i had to buy i I actually bought emma the, the boots that she wears the little flowery doc martens I bought those for her in Holland. I went shopping with us. I said, "We've got to get you some. We've got to get you some Doc Martens uh, because you just look too straight laced." And she went, "All oh, right, yes, I'd quite like a pair of Doc Martens, actually." So I said, "Come with me," and I took, <laughs> I took her out in Utrecht, bought some boots. <laughs> Steve Hogarth, footwear for the stars. I'm a fucking control freak. All right. So, Tim, when did you first start to... When when was it whispered? When did somebody come and say, probably Lucy, say in your ear, there might be a chance that? I can't remember the exact time. No, but I, I mean, do roughly remember, how long before? Six months, oh, a year? Was, no, it was a year or so, because it, the tickets went on sale about a year before, didn't they? Or something ridiculous like that. And they sold out in, like, four minutes. Mm. And I remember... I don't know where we were, but I was in the dressing room the day that they went on sale and somebody came in and said, we've sold out. I know where we were. <laughs> we we were in Utrecht. That's right, yeah. Yeah, I'll never forget it. That was incredible. So this, no, it was, it was amazing. And, I mean, there's so many things that you can talk about that show uh, from, you know, both the perspective of being on, you know, the band side of things and doing what we specifically did, which was to film it. But also as a fan, I think... I mean, the, the the great ingredients for what we do in terms of concert films is obviously the band's performance on stage, but it's also the the show production, it's also the venue, and it's also the audience. And that night, I think everything, it was a perfect storm, everything seemed to come together and everything was almost, you know, spot on. And the, vi- the vibe and the atmosphere in the, in the whole place was just electrifying. When when we filmed at Royal Albert Hall, um, I <laughs> the gallery is under the stage in basically what's the what is the uh, the switch room. So I'm in this like the most unglamorous part of the building possible, and I'm I'm watching all this unfold on on the monitors in front of me. This amazing thing that's happening, you know, ten fifteen feet above my head. Um, it was just an amazing experience, and 
you know, everything's about connections, isn't it? And and things are coming full circle. And going back to like my first ever gig was Marillion at the Birmingham Odeon in 1986. And then however many years later, I'm sitting there directing a film shoot of them, their debut performance at the Royal Albert Hall. It's, yeah, absolutely mind-blowing. It felt like that day, it felt like a load of mates getting together and putting on a show in a posh room. Not for me, it didn't. It just felt like the, the ultimate nervous experience. <laughs> I, I was trembling when I walked when I walked through the stage door, you know, in the afternoon to the sound check. I was, I think, all five of us. I've I've not seen five of us nervous at once. Mm-hmm. We were all we were all bloody hell. We better get this right. This is a big deal. Um, we were all we were all really apprehensive. We were looking forward to it, but but we were bricking it as well, I think. I certainly was. But you know um, what? The, the whole audience, that whole room was gunning for you. You know, mm-hmm. I, guess you, I guess you do shows where you feel like you're sort of stepping into a bit of a bear pit and there might be some, uh, it depends where you're playing, I guess. But that night, everybody wanted to see that was to be, you know, the Zen, yeah. you know, the, the top Marillion show ever. So I think... We've passed an anniversary fairly recently, haven't we, of the date? Um, yes, that's the amazing thing, isn't it? October the thirteenth, and it was it was a Friday, wasn't it? So it's Friday the thirteenth, and then this year it's Friday the thirteenth. Yeah, it's probably how we um, got the date. <laughs> Nobody so, else wanted it. It, it. it seems now on an annual basis on social media, it's become Marillion Royal Albert Hall Day, and people <laughs> share, share memories and photographs and oh, all kinds cool. of things from that day. What six years ago now? Mm. But Gosh. but for for us actually filming the whole thing. I mean, all the planning started um, almost as soon as we we heard that we'd got the chance to do it. And I work really closely with a guy called Jeremy Mason, who's a really good mate. And we've worked together now for over 10 years. And we got our heads together and thought, well, what, what are we going to do with this? And we'd, we'd already filmed twice at the Royal Albert Hall before. We'd done uh, the John Lord tribute show um which which was that was an immense thing as well they they had a full orchestra uh one half of the show was john lord's orchestral music the second half with was all his rock stuff deep purple did a set bruce dickinson uh came on stage glenn hughes was there paul weller did something um even jeremy Irons sat at a piano and did something that night so that was quite cool and then the second time we did the royal albert hall it was Talking of anti-establishment acts, it was Bring Me the Horizon, who were effing and blinding and chucking themselves around <laughs> the stage. And for that show, they had a full orchestra as well and a choir. Now, this is a, this is another connection thing, isn't it? Because mm. we filmed that in 2016, the day the year before uh, Marillion played the Royal Albert Hall, and this choir were just off the scale. They were incredible. And from the moment we filmed them, I thought. I'd really love to hear their voices on a Marillion album. And I think over the years, I'd kind of dropped hints to Mike or something. He really sort of have a listen to these guys and see see where they're coming from. And then when An Hour Before It Start was being recorded and we were at Real World, I just overheard Steve say, and I didn't even know what song it was at the time, he was saying, oh, we could do some female choral voices at this point in this song. And I thought, this is my chance. So I got, I showed uh, H and Mike. A, he sidled up. He sidled, I sidled up. up. To me. 
And I showed them a clip of his laptop. They bring me the Horizon show at the Royal Albert Hall with uh, Choir Noir. And uh, how about these guys? And put them in contact with Cat. And from that, Cat got involved and the, their voices can be heard on Care and Crow and the Nightingale. And honestly, Crow and the Nightingale is in my top, was probably my favourite Marillion song, not just because of the, having sort of pulled pull these people together, but I think, you know, the, the the choir's voices on a Marillion song, it just sends it to another level. And of course, you've got the strings on that song as well. And it just, ah. Oh, I've got spine tingles thinking about it. It's, it's just such, yeah, such an they, amazing thing. They transformed it. So the Royal Albert, Royal Albert Hall to, to me has been like a journey, but the third time we filmed there with Marillion, best best working day ever, loved it. Every minute of it, it was brilliant. Yeah, I loved it when I look back on it <laughs> in a way, you know. There were there were a couple of moments that I... I mean, I think there's a there's a there's a point in the show that the more sensitive people will see me relax, you know. That they, they go, ah, oh, that was the point. He decided he was having a good time. Up to there, it was like an exam. Um, it was just, you know, I was just in get this right. It's really important mode. And then at a certain point in the show, I thought, oh man, this is something else, you know. Um, I'm just going to ride it now. I'm not. I'm. You know. I don't need to worry about this. It's. It's. It's what it is. And um, so, at some point in the show, but I, I'll never, as I've often harped on about, I'll never, I'll never forget just um, listening to them play the intro to Estonia. Um, you know, me and Pete just standing there with our back to the crowd, watching the watching the quartet and Sam and Emma. And thinking, good God, this is it. I can die, I can die, I can die. That's how I felt. Was it helpful for you, Tim, to have when you attacked that? Because obviously the same thing applies for everybody. It's not just, you know, I mean, I mean, obviously we're all we're all watching the band and, and, and absolutely get it about that performance. But, you know, to your point, everything has to be right. Lights have to be right, sounds have to be right, everything to make that experience, everything's got to has got to, you know, come together. Was it helpful that was the third time you'd you'd been in there? You'd got an idea of the venue, you'd got you probably got some idea of shots in your head and what you wanted to capture and, and, and that kind of that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's a very important part of it, knowing where to place cameras and I mean it's it's a constant battle sometimes with us and venues in that and promoters in that we sometimes feel like we get shoehorned into venues, you know, oh we'll film a show. And then all you know, the whole place is sold out, and we can only sort of fit ourselves into little corners, which aren't necessarily the best places to put cameras in terms of creating a concert film. But with the Royal Albert Hall, we were involved from a very early point. Um, we were able to get uh, a jib upstairs in the gallery. We were able to get a, a tracking camera at front of house, and all these little things added to the you know, what you see at the end of it. Um, was what a, was the question? It was, all, <laughs> it was also the small matter of the fact that. Tim made us play the entire show twice um, so that he could get all his cutaway shots and he could have cameras on stage in amongst the, the players and, and, and shoot the um, shoot the girls and mm-hmm. get get sort of really close-up shots that are physically impossible during the, the performance to the public. 
So when we when I walked on stage to to do that show on the night, I'd already done it once that day. So it was it had been really hard work mm-hmm. uh, for for everybody. I mean, it really paid off. Um, but but because we weren't doing two nights and. Tim didn't have the luxury of shooting it all twice and cutting it together. He he needed he needed close ups of the yeah of the string mean, quartet. So 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 grateful for you guys doing that because it really did, you know, the, for, for it to be like. And, and the film's had such great impact, hasn't it, over the years? It's it's actually turned out on Sky Arts, I think, at some point. It's yeah, been broadcast. It's, 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 it has. It's been broadcast a few times on Sky. Yeah. So it, it's got us a little bit of pen, penetration. <laughs> uh, but, you know, cool, bugger that. I mean, it's, I think it's the best thing we've done. Oh, it's just lovely. It's great. I mean, we work, we work really hard with, um, you know, Jens and Simon as well to ensure that... You know what Jens is doing with the lights is camera friendly, and what Simon does with the uh, video screens is stuff that I can integrate into. You know things things like Blu-ray menus and credit sequences and stuff like that to make sure that everything feels visually integrated and feels like a thing rather than something that's just been cobbled together. So all that planning went into the Royal Albert Hall as well. We also filmed a, a little documentary to go uh, to go concurrently with it, uh, which was put onto the Blu-ray release, and and you can see that um, if you haven't got that Blu-ray, you can look on the space, you know, our video on demand channel, and it's on there as well. And that's a really interesting story of how the show came about and the actual day itself. Mm. I think that's, I guess, that's what I've kind of been driving at all the way through both the last chapter and this this particular one is that freedom but then the care that comes from that freedom of people doing really 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 thoughtful considered work that 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 makes something that is incredibly special you know it starts out with songs and the band that are incredibly special but that that quality that um creativity that care flows through everything and 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 that's that's not the corporate music world. That's no. not you know that's not about packaging product. That's something that goes far beyond that. And and you know and I think as fans we get that we absolutely understand it. And I think it's it's part of what keeps this thing. You know, it's almost like you want loads of people to be million fans because it because of all this care and how special it is. But at the same time, you want to keep it and hoard it for yourself. It's a, it's, it's really difficult to, you know, because when you, when you feel part of something that is a club that is, you know, is so special, but also feels like a, a tight knit group all the way through, all the way through, you know, from, from, from band out through everybody else, including fans, you can you kind of want to hold on it onto it just for you. It's part of the DNA of the whole organization. I think it's very, it's, it's a very small organization, you know, you've got, Lucy, Frenchie, Stephanie at the Racket Club. You got Mark Kennedy out in Holland doing his thing. But in terms of numbers, it's really small. Mm. But there's, um, I mean, Lucy's great at doing this. There's uh, this it throws it out to the whole world via social media in such a way that the fan base feel like they're part of it as well. You know, mm. 
we're, we're, we're all we're, we're not shirking in the background people know our faces and know our names and we're able to answer questions and and keep people in touch with things that goes goes on in Marillion world that if Marillion were signed to a record label these things might be guarded secrets and it just, it just makes it something completely different so there's a kind of irony that that had we had more commercial success had we really broken through and had a monster hit and um be this kind of big time rock band none of this would have been possible you know we we this feeling wouldn't be possible um the the level of care as Ant said probably wouldn't have happened because the whole thing would have remained corporate and there'd been there'd have been a lot of money riding on it and so it would have been more about the size of the invoices that people were passing back to than than the care um and so and that feeling of specialness that 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 the fans have for us is because it feels like it's their thing it's like this you know all all although I mean we're not a pub band but we still feel a little bit undiscovered I think for, for you know and and the people who have discovered it feel like they're onto something um and all that's possible you know I've I've often railed against the EMI, the fact that No One Can wasn't a huge hit because it should have been, and because Beautiful wasn't a huge hit because it should have been, because they both are. They're both huge hits. They just didn't sell. <laughs> um, but that saved us in so many ways. Creatively, I think it saved us. We, if If any of those songs had really hit big, we'd have had a terrible dilemma creatively because we'd have had to keep that going and it's not really what drives us. We're driven by other things. We're driven by things that are more natural and more truthful than than getting into keeping hits going. Um I mean maybe it would maybe we would have just headed for the hills and laid laid low till it had blown over. I don't know, with our millions. I don't know. Um but it, it is what we've become is a direct consequence of our limited success. Not you know, and, and and if we'd have had great success, none of this would be going on. And if we'd had less success, none of it would be going on. So we we found a sweet spot, really. And and to be fair, if no one kind of been a huge hit, we never would have got Tim's favourite song, and we never would have got mine. Right, which you know. are what? Well, Tim's just said probably crying the nightingale. Oh yeah, you never would have got that. And 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 beyond you will probably always be mine. So there we are. There's, if no one can happens, and you're trying to repeat that, we probably don't get either of those songs. No, I don't know where it will. You well, you never know where it will go. It's like life, isn't it? It's the old sliding doors thing. I mean, mm. you know, you walk out the front door, and either a, either a truck hits you, or you meet the love of your life. Ten yeah. minutes later, and everything changes forever. Not a lot of trucks go around the green, though. You're probably fairly well, safe. You'd be surprised. Polish sat-navs. <laughs> let's go for a bit of diary. Let's go for a bit of diary. And then I've got one other question to ask Tim before we wrap up. So let's grab a quick uh, bit of diary. We, we've established that you're probably now in Canada, aren't we? <laughs> I'm probably now in Canada. 
Friday, 16th of May, Santiago, Caupolicán. Woke around 10 and decided to brave the breakfast room. Poured myself some muesli and drank coffee, in inverted commas, which was very weak and tasted of nothing much, while people wandered over to congratulate me on last night's performance and ask for autographs and photographs. In between spoonfuls of cereal, I stood up and sat down patiently grinning for cameras. I don't mind doing it, but when you've just rolled out of bed and you're trying to have breakfast, it gets a bit much after the first two or three. Returned to my room to pack. Always a stressful time. I have a history of leaving stuff in hotel rooms and no amount of idiot checking seems to help. As I've probably already said here, an idiot check is a flawed notion when it's an idiot who's doing the checking. Left the Casino Monticelli Hotel with a sigh of relief. It's not exactly easy to stay here if you don't speak Spanish. At midday for the van ride to Santiago. Was photographed and cuddled repeatedly while trying to make my way to the van. It was a beautiful morning and after about an hour along the distant mountain flanked freeway we arrived at the Crown Plaza Hotel Santiago and were met by a welcoming committee of managers and concierges, all declaring it a great honour to have us in their hotel. At the reception desk, all the room keys were already prepared, and I made my way in the elevator to room 2105. The key didn't open the door, so I had to return to reception to get another one. The duty manager let me in. I was to have trouble getting into my room for the rest of the day. I think the electric locks were past their sell-by date. My room was a suite with a lovely view of a palm tree-lined square and church below. I had just enough time to unpack my laptop and gain access to the internet before the promoter's rep, Werner, arrived at my door with a woman who was going to colour my roots. We hauled a chair into the bathroom and she promptly set about the task, leaving me to cook for 40 minutes before I showered off the colour and just made it back down to reception for the 3.30 departure to the show. Carpolican was the indigenous tribal king who stood up to the invading Spanish and later paid the ultimate, unpleasant, price. Went inside and straight up to the restaurant where we were given chicken and mashed potato with bits of olive in. All very nice, if a bit chewy. Soundcheck progressed without incident, in other words, took an hour instead of two, and we eventually returned to the hotel. By now I was very tired and couldn't wait to get back to my room to rest. Fifteen more minutes trying to gain access to my room wasn't what I needed. Ended up writing Sophie an email to apologise for the one I'd sent her the other night, before lying on the bed relaxing but trying not to sleep. I didn't want my voice to close down. It's held up really well on this tour, but it's getting a little scratchy now. Arrived back in the gig at 7.50 for the 8 o'clock meet and greet to discover that there's been a major problem all day with the lights. The local promoter has failed to supply our specified lights for the show and we don't have any follow spots tonight. This is a disaster as I'm going to spend half the show running around in the dark. Well, last minute Latin American negotiations seemed finally to have secured one follow spot, so we're in business. We went on stage to huge applause and played Gaza, after which I said good evening, 
to receive an ecstatic crowd response. The Santiago crowd lived up to our expectations after a very high benchmark last time. The band played well and technical troubles were thankfully absent for this, our last night of the tour. During the second encore I decided to do the walk through the crowd and eventually found myself at the back of the hall with Phil and Jens behind the sound and light desks. Beer rained down on us as the front row of the balcony leant over trying to see me below and spilling their drinks in the process. I took it into my head to step over the desks and back into the crowd, not realising that what I thought was a flat surface was in fact a hole, which my leg went straight down through. I landed on my backside on some sort of barrier. Fortunately the damage was only minor bruising and I managed to return to the stage in one piece minus microphone, to finish the song on a spare mic which Nick Todd magically produced. A great end to a successful tour, and no hospital visits. Decompressed in the small dressing room before going to the cafe where the guests were assembled. Did the photographs and the autographs, and returned to the Crown Plaza to be given yet another room key, which, against all odds, opened my door. Hit the bed running, deciding not to shower until the morning. Too tired. Saturday, 17th of May. Santiago, Rio, Heathrow. Flew home from Santiago, changing planes at Rio, with a three-hour wait in a very warm club lounge. Rio Airport, like all the others, isn't finished and won't be in time for the World Cup. Flew home business class. Ah, the luxury so could lie down and kind of sleep during the overnight journey. Watched the best exotic Marigold Hotel and thoroughly enjoyed it. Wednesday, 9th of July. Home, Montreal, Quebec. Rose at 7.30 with vibes and let Elle sleep for half an hour while he had breakfast. Today, shreddies and I had coffee, feeling rough after a night of fitful sleep. This morning's going away has unsettled me. I am currently enduring a torn meniscus cartilage in my right knee. It locked up a couple of weeks ago in a meeting at, of all places, Beaconsfield Motorway Services, and I couldn't walk at all for a few days, although it has slowly eased up. An operation is scheduled at some point. In the meantime, it seems to be slowly sorting itself out. I can walk okay now, but I'm worried about the forthcoming shows in Quebec and Lorelei. I think that's what had kept me awake, along with the knowledge that I must go away. By 8.40, we had the boy dressed, scrubbed and ready for school. He found an unusual fly on the window and wanted to take it with him. They're currently doing bugs. I had helped him draw a few insects yesterday for homework. We put the fly in a tub and he carefully carried it to the car. For once we weren't late. I did the school run and we arrived in time for the whistle. He waved through the window at me after he arrived in his classroom and I mouthed an I love you to him. Exchanged pleasantries with the other dads and mums before returning home to pack. Always stressful. I always forget something. Still, you've got your passport and money. Everything else is a convenience. The car came for me at 11.30, by which time I was ready. Decided to strap my knee for the flight, so packed knee straps in the hand luggage. 
said bye to my lovely Elle, who seems okay about it. It's only five days. The taxi ride was uneventful. Chatted with the driver about Brazil's colossal 7-1 thrashing last night at the hands of Germany in the World Cup semi-final. Also chatted about Al Green, ACDC, George Michael, Bob Harris, the Isley Brothers, Level 42, Earth, Wind and Fire and the Travelling Wilburys, all the way to Heathrow Terminal 2. Checked in without too much trouble. It's all getting high-tech and I now have my boarding pass as a digital splodge on my iPhone, which gets scanned periodically, and somewhat uncertainly, by machines. Security was thorough. Despite wearing only thin cotton trousers and a t-shirt, I managed to set off the beep and a man patted me down, leaving nothing much unpatted. Said hi to others and we had brunch together in the new terminal building at The Perfectionist Café. Now that's just asking for trouble. In some regards, we answered the description, but not in others. The Eggs Benedict was, to be honest, perfect. The walk to the gate from Terminal 2 was miles along corridors, up and down escalators and along travelators, until I was sure we were going to emerge in Beaconsfield or Brixton. I have a theory that it doesn't matter which Heathrow Terminal you fly from, By the time you've done the two-mile trek to the gate, you end up at the same one. Boarded the flight and was relieved to have been given quite a bit of legroom. I'm going to need it. It's a long way to Montreal with meniscus trouble. Strapped up my leg, settled down for the long flight, listened to seals dreaming in metaphors and Rufus Wainwright's I don't know what it is, and wrote this. The stewardess made a great show of giving us menus so we could choose the meal, after which she informed us that, uh, basically, it's pasta. The Thai curry has run out. I ordered pasta. I've had worse, but it wouldn't have made it out of the kitchen at the perfectionist's cafe. Well, the flight passed quite quickly. Didn't sleep. Before we began the approach to Montreal, the steward asked which hot snack I would prefer, chicken or vegetarian? I opted for the chicken. She came back and said they only had meatballs. I said just coffee would be fine. Air Canada doesn't look too rosy next to British Airways either. In Montreal, there was a half-hour wait for the bags. We had to clear customs before checking in again for the onward flight to Quebec. Everyone was friendly, as usual. As I walked towards the security queue to head back to yet another gate... I noticed that the World Cup semi-final between Holland and Argentina was approaching its 90th minute with a nil-nil scoreline. By the time I'd cleared security, they were well into playing extra time and still nil-nil. When I finally made it to gate A21 after another half-mile walk, extra time had finished and the match was going to be decided on penalties. Fortunately, there was a bar at the gate, and Rothers and I watched the penalties on a TV screen there. Holland missed the first penalty and never recovered, so the final will be Germany-Argentina. Waited a while more at the gate to be told there was a technical fault on our plane, and that we had to change gates and wait while the luggage was transferred to another aeroplane. Just what you want after a transatlantic flight. The flight up to Quebec was in one of those noisy prop planes that makes your brain vibrate in your skull. Mercifully, it was only a 30-minute flight. 
I spent it rereading Albert Camus' The Outsider. In Quebec, we were picked up in a van by a man called Calypso and taken the 20-minute drive to the Hilton. Checked in and found room 1423. Nice view of the Parliament building and BBC World on the telly. The Israelis have decided it's a good idea to murder 80 Palestinians by bombing their homes in the Gaza Strip in vengeance for the three Israeli kids kidnapped and murdered last month. Awful. I guess 25 to 1 is the usual ratio. Officially, of course, it's in retaliation for rockets fired out of Gaza, none of which seem to have injured anyone so far. That don't make it right, and I wouldn't want to sleep with the thought of a rocket, however crude, dropping on my house. But when you compare it to what those poor sods in Gaza have to contend with. And of course, they are not allowed to leave. There's a wall round it. Went to bed at ten. And we're back. And I've got one last question, Tim. And obviously, thanks to everybody for hanging around because we we've double recorded this morning, and everybody's desperately got to be somewhere else. So we'll wrap this up very quickly. But Tim, final question then: live streaming. Because the first time we met was at Oxford for the first H Natural live stream, which then ended up being mm-hmm. the model for live streaming for the band as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, because obviously the band live streams um, followed after after that one. How was that as a prospect? How was, uh, you know, because that would have been a, a new thing. For yeah, you. yeah, it came, obviously that, that whole uh, trajectory for that came out of... Uh, the pandemic didn't it where musicians were going online and on facebook live or whatever it was to strum a guitar and still trying to be connected to their audience so the great thing about that was all this technology came out that made it very very accessible for you to be able to do that um and obviously the audience and the demand for it was there especially when we did the first st john's church one yeah. where we didn't have an audience and and uh you were performing in an empty church with a couple of cameras on you and connected to the outside world. And, it, you know, it was hugely successful. Um, it was hugely it, weird doing it. Yeah, I bet it was. It, it was really weird being <laughs> in that room. And obviously all three of us were. Yeah. But, you know, in terms of producing it, it was essentially we were we were making live TV. It's just that it was being broadcast on, on the internet. It was exactly the same process as, uh, you know, the beep would go to Wimbledon or something like that. Um, so yeah, it's a thing at the time. I think it's great, and we've recently done the Crooked Billet, uh, H's last show at the Crooked Billet, and exactly the same process. But um, o- over the last few years, we've seen the audience numbers dwindle a little, mm-hmm. and I'm pretty sure that's because people have re- obviously re-engaged with you know going out to yeah. concert venues and, and wanting their live experiences to be just that live. So. Yeah, there's there's still a space for it, I think, but I don't think it's as relevant as it as it used to be. I think the thing for me about that was you captured something beautifully in that first one. Mm. I mean, obviously you had the advantage of not having the audience so you could set the shots up a little bit the way you wanted, but it looked so intimate. It looked yeah. beautiful. We we treated we did actually we funnily enough, we treated it more like a TV thing than a 
than a concert thing just because we had the the control of where we could put the cameras what we could do with the lighting and i i worked with stevie finch who's been involved with marillion for years and years and years and years and years and has lit h's oxford shows since you've started doing them and we wanted to do something quite nice so we came we came up with the idea of the edison light bulbs and tracking the camera behind them so you get that kind of depth of field and foreground going past and it worked really really nicely it does look really nice you're right and 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 of course i think the outpouring i mean i i mean i was kind of watching social media that night with lucy as as comments were coming in Mm. um and looking at at bits as we were going along and obviously you know h h uh, came on and that first i mean that first number you floored us all you know what did i do I'm saying that now. I can't. I can't. Okay. I can't remember. You did something. You came on and did something. Did you read something? Yes. You... Oh yeah, yeah. I, I, I. Um. Yeah, that was it. Um. Our little town of Bethlehem, wasn't it? That's it. Yeah. That and, and broke everybody me. in the room and everybody watching. Pretty much broke everybody. Um. Um. I should probably read that again this year. Really. Yeah. Uh, and a little bit yourself as well, and then we took a few songs to put ourselves all back together. Mm. Um, but but in in terms of just capturing a moment again, in the same way that the Albert Hall captured something, I think that that moment in the live stream captured a collective sense of where we'd been for the last yeah. six, eight months, ten months, whatever it was. And wasn't it the day before we were locked down again? Yes, it was. It was, wasn't it? Because we didn't even know mm. if we could do it. We had to double check if we actually could all be in that building. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. right. I think they probably bent the rules slightly. I don't know for, you know, just to just to allow us in. Well, I think on rule breaking since then, I think we're fairly safe. I think there's other people <laughs> that the Met are a little bit more interested in. So, we're, we're the probably other, the, right. the, the other great thing about live streaming is that obviously, like you just said, you can you can see the live chat coming through. And when we were sat at the Crooked Billet the other week and. Uh, we fired up the live stream. The live chat was coming through, and people were saying hello from all over the world, yeah. uh, which is an yeah. incredible thing, isn't it? You see, yeah. <laughs> I mean, for that one, we were sitting in a in a tent behind a pub in the middle of rural Oxfordshire or whatever yeah. we were, and suddenly so, you're getting hello messages from west coast of America and and all that. Is the immediacy of it is really, really quite something. But I guess it talks to, and I think this was the, 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 again, the care and everything coming together, how you can create those special moments in that virtual sense if you, if you treat them with enough care and if, and if everything comes together, you get, you get that, the intimacy and everything in, in, in what is, you know, a cold, essentially a cold production. I, I mean, it was a cold room for a start. But but there was no you know Ace you got no feedback from an audience because there was no audience to feedback and feed off. No, I'm I'm ever conscious of uh, of that sense of family from the from the audience now. So I don't know over the over the years, I'm when I'm singing, I'm not just mining around inside myself for for what the song's about. I'm I I am constantly conscious of how much it all means to people. That that never really goes leaves me, you know, and and so I I always feel connected to everybody when I'm singing, whether they're there or not. Mm. I know that um 
I know that there's a kind of a, a spiritual understanding out there for for what I'm doing, and I can't tell you how lucky I am to to have that and to know it's there. Well, I think that's a perfect place to stop. Thank you both very much. Thanks, Tim, uh, particularly for hanging around to, to to capture those Albert Hall thoughts, but also those Oxford thoughts. Um, and Albert Hall's thoughts sounds like a little a little book, though, doesn't it? Maybe there ought to be one of those. Maybe that's the Albert alternative Hall to the coffee table. Book. The Albert Hall thoughts. <laughs> right, I've, I've got to run. You've got to run. You've got stuff to do. Really We've all got am, to run. Yeah. Yeah. Right, uh, cheerio, everybody. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks we'll very speak much. To all yeah, enjoyed soon. that. Cheers, Tim. I'll see I'll you tomorrow. See you tomorrow. Yeah, <laughs> go easy. <laughs> Always. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Corona Diaries. It featured Steve Hogarth with the insights and me, Ant Short, with the questions. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider subscribing and maybe leaving a review as this will help others find it. You could even share with other like-minded souls, should the mood take you. This has been an A Short Stories production.